So again, I'll say that one more time since I forgot to start the recording. Um, defining church membership. Church membership is the formal joining together of Christians in one place to worship and serve the Lord in accordance with and submission to the word of God. So as we talk about church membership tonight, we're going to talk about it kind of centered around three questions. All right. The first question is, what is a church? And we've talked about that already some, but we're going to talk about it a little bit differently tonight. Um, The second question is, why join a church? And the third question we're going to talk about is, what does church membership entail? All right. So question number one, what is a church? So we covered this extensively in session one. So we're not going to go super deep into detail here tonight. Uh, That session is available on our website uh, for anybody who wants to go back and listen. So if you want more information about what the church is, uh, you can do that there. For the purposes of our discussion tonight, we're going to use the following definition. All right. The church is a body of people who profess and give evidence that they have been saved by God's grace alone, for his glory alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is a church. All right? The local church is marked by some distinctives, and there's actually four distinctives. Sorry about that. Um, I don't know why I have three there. Um, I want to highlight a few of these distinctives. There are other distinctives of a church, but these are ones that I wanted to highlight. The first one is baptism. Thank you, Scott. The first one is baptism. All right. Baptism is a public profession of faith. It is the public profession of faith. Often we think about public profession of faith as being someone who says, I'm a believer. That's not, that's not a public profession of faith. In scripture, baptism is the public profession of faith. And it's also where that public profession of faith is affirmed by the local church. All right. So uh, about a year and a half ago, I preached on baptism. and I talked in that sermon about how baptism understood rightly is something that is administered by and done within the confines of a local church. This is why. Because baptism is the, the affirmation of the church of someone's profession of faith. It's those things combined together. It is the church's way of saying, it's a person's way of saying, I am following Jesus, and it's the church's way of saying, we believe you and support you in that. All right? The next distinctive that I want to highlight is that a church has the proclamation of and obedience to the word of God. The word of God is the central focus of the gathering of the church. All right? Any church that focuses on other things rather than the word of God, or even more extensively than the word of God, I would argue that they're probably not a real church. All right? The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is where we jointly celebrate Christ's work together. All right. So it is how we respond to the word of God. It's how we respond to what Jesus has done. That is what the Lord's Supper is. Finally, a distinctive of the church is covenant. We have a we are committed to one another. We have made a commitment to one another. All right. Those are distinctives of the local church. Now, 
I also want to highlight some things that help us to understand what a church is not. All right? A church is not your family or friends. All right? So Scott, for example, grew up going to a church that is populated heavily by his family. Right? That is extraordinarily common in the southern United States where people go to the church that their family goes to. It doesn't matter if if they're actually a good church. It doesn't matter if they preach the word of God. It doesn't matter how they do things, what they do. It's their family's church. That's where they all go to church. They gather with the people that they are familiar with. That's not the church. The church is not surrounding ourselves with people that we know. Church is not something that you watch on television or on the internet. All right? Church is not surrounding ourselves with comfort and ease. Too many people have used the pandemic, especially as their excuse to transition into a life of, I go to church at home in my pajamas on my couch. That's not church. All right? You might as well just watch Netflix because it's literally the same. It's not church. Church is not people of similar socioeconomic status. All right? So it's not surrounding ourselves with people like us. You see this a lot, especially in area, like areas of higher income where the people of higher income go to this particular church and people of lower income go to that particular church and they kind of surround themselves with the people who are like them. That is not what the church is. The church is a diverse body of believers. Additionally, a church is not people who share similar interests. So perfect example of this. Cowboy church is not church. It's cowboys who have a Bible study with music. Oh, it's big. In rural areas, in rural areas, churches start cow... They'll start a cowboy church, and it's basically a bunch of men who don't want to go to regular church because that's not manly enough. So they go to cowboy church where they can wear their tight jeans and their leather vest. It's usually, it's usually on a night during the week. Okay. You know, they're all spitting their, their chewing tobacco into the dirt in the barn they meet in. That's not a church. Yeah. There was one, there was one up around Lake Providence when I was there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, our, our church's band played there before. Got that a cowboys. Yeah. That is not a church. That is a bunch of people who have a similar interest. And that's and cowboy church is one that's prominent, but there are other types of things like that. There's motorcycle churches, there's mom groups that call themselves churches. There's all these things that People believe, well, we're Christians and we're together. That makes us a church. No, it's not a group of people who have similar interests. Well, that's, that was this one here. Uh, groups centered around a subtask. So reaching college students, doing mission work, those sorts of things. Those are also not churches. Those are parachurch organizations that people treat like churches. Um, Hannah can tell you she was in Southeast, she was at Southeastern at the BCM, and there were plenty of people who went to the BCM that didn't go to church because the BCM was their church. That's how they viewed it. That's not church. Church is a diverse body of believers who are covenanted together to worship Jesus Christ and to love one another. That's what church is. All right? And so 
It's not this, this subtesting. It's not surrounding ourselves with people who prioritize the things that we prioritize. And that can be good things. But again, not a church. All right. So why join a church? Why join a church? Well, there are five reasons that we should join a church. Reason number one, to assure ourselves, to assure ourselves, you should not join the church thinking that doing so will make you saved. But you should join the church to help you in making certain that you are saved. All right. John 14, 21, Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And being a part of the local church is commanded in scripture. So Jesus here says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. It's commanded to be a part of a church. Therefore, if you refuse to be a part of a church, you do not love Jesus. You can't, there, there's no way to weasel your way out of that one. It is what it is. All right. Being a member of a church shows our genuine love for one another. A refusal to be a part of a church showcases a lack of love for other believers, which indicates a lack of love for Christ. So going further than just a lack of obedience to the commands of Christ, a lack of love for other Christians also showcases a lack of love for Christ. In becoming members of a church, we are grasping hands with each other to know and be known by each other. So it gives us assurance. The next reason is to evangelize the world. When we act together, when we work together, we can better spread the gospel at home and abroad. We promote the gospel by cooperating to take it to those who have not yet heard it. All right, so that's reason number two. Reason number three, to expose false gospels. One of the things that the church does is it helps to keep us from finding our hope in our own works or in anything apart from Christ. Being a part of a group of sinners who are totally dependent upon the grace of Jesus, we are compelled to seek the same. And so one of the things that you'll see about these things is that these are sort of dependent upon being in a good church, in a, a church that actually preaches and teaches the Bible, actually lives out these things. Because there are plenty of so-called churches out there that essentially preach self-reliance and self-justification. And so we're talking about reasons to join a good church. It helps to root out false gospels in our own hearts. Another reason is we should join a church is to edify the church. Joining a church counters our wrong individualism. The Christian life is not just about you and about those that you are trying to reach with the gospel. Instead, we are called to make disciples out of the flock of sheep that he has already saved. All right? So we talked before about evangelism. I preached this morning on conversion, right? Evangelism is the process of trying to reach the lost. Conversion is the work that the Lord does in sending the Spirit to, regen- to bring regeneration. Discipleship is what takes place thereafter. And so we edify the church by discipling other believers. All of us are at different stages of sanctification. All of us are at different levels of knowledge about the scriptures. All of us have understood the things of God in relation to our own experiences in different ways. 
And so we are to walk through life with one another and help one another. Does that make sense? All right. We see this really, really shown explicitly in the scriptures. Think about places like that's not John 14, 21. That's Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Um, it's on your sheet. Um, do I? It's correct on the sheet. It's wrong on the slide. But what I've done is I've underlined up here all of the plurals in there. It's not underlined on your sheet, but listen, listen to what it says. Therefore, brothers, plural, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And then in verse 24, it it makes it even more explicit. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the author of Hebrews, who is likely Paul, is making us see that the Christian life is lived within community, that we see these things collectively, that we approach Christ collectively. And as we do that, we are encouraging one another. We are gathering together and we are trying to stir up one another to love and good works. You see that? So we join a church to edify the church. And finally, the last reason I want to highlight is that we join the church to glorify God. Joining together with other believers is how we bring praise and worship to God. Yeah, you can sit at home and sing songs of praise to God, but doesn't it stand to reason that Eli spits ice all over the floor? Uh, Doesn't it stand to reason that if you singing praises to God brings glory to God, Gathering together with the saints, all singing praises to God, magnifies his glory, right? We are not increasing his glory. Let's just be clear here, right? God is infinitely glorious. We're not making him more glorious by having more people singing louder. But what we are doing is showing the glory of God to the world around us. Make sense? So we join a church for these five reasons, to assure ourselves, to evangelize the world, to expose false gospels, to edify the church, and to glorify God. Um, as, as Baptist, I could have added a sixth reason, to enjoy potlucks. Uh, you know, there, this is not an exhaustive list of reasons to join the church, but these are five very important reasons to join the church. And I said, as I said before, just to specify, these are reasons for joining a faithful Bible preaching and teaching church. All right? Not cowboy church. Join real good churches. All right? I'm going to pause here for a moment and allow for any questions, if if there are any. Okay, let's hear them. Yes. People who, I mean, I, I think about before transportation was as um, 
developed as it is now, and naturally you would mostly be with relatives, especially if you were simply here, or people doing the same types of things. Think of soldiers serving in the army, mostly being with other soldiers, like that sort of thing. Does it mean that gathering together with other believers who happen to be related to you or share a common interest is wrong as long as it's in the context of a true church? Correct. And then also just thinking about solid theology not being one of those interests. Like the church you choose to go to, going to one with solid theology or one that you see as coming and being founded on the Word of God, that's not you just picking a church based on your preference the way that other things would be. Right. Well, I'm, I'm going to use Scott as an example again, right? Scott's family mostly attends one Methodist church. Scott has different biblical convictions now. There's nothing wrong with going to a good church that you feel like is in alignment with Scripture if your family goes there. But Scott, having different biblical convictions, would be in sin if he went to his family's church because he knows, biblically speaking, that the way that the Baptists approach things is biblically sound, and the way that Methodists do is not as biblically sound. Does that make sense? Yeah. The other thing when you were talking about edifying the church and glorifying God was just, like, what does it say to our community when they walk into an empty, mostly empty church? You know, it's not that feeling the, filling the pews is about the numbers or patting ourselves on the back and Look what we did. We, we filled the building. But just, what does it look like? And, and we don't revolve our, our lives around what, it, what the lost see in our lives, right? We don't orient ourselves about what they prefer or what they see. But truly, what does it say about what we say we believe about God if we are not present with his people or right. make that a priority? Well, yeah, I mean, I, there, I, I don't remember who said it, but, you know, the the quote essentially, you know, is how can, how will anyone ever believe you when you say Jesus is Lord, if Jesus doesn't even compel you to get out of your own bed on Sunday mornings, right? Like you can run around saying Jesus is Lord, but if he's not even Lord of your Sundays, is he really Lord of your life at all? Sure. Anybody else have anything they want to say? Any questions they want to ask at this point? All right. Well, let's talk about the third question. This is where we're going to spend most of our time tonight. What does church membership entail? What does church membership entail? So fundamentally, church membership entails a life of repentance and belief. That's what it is at its root. All right. But a little bit more developed than that. Church membership says that we are responsible for one another. We are responsible for one another. And so if you can't really read that, 
It's a triangle. And the three points of the triangle, you have pastors at the top. At the bottom left, you have individual Christians. At the bottom right, you have the regular assembly of Christians. All right? So Christians as individuals, Christians as a group, pastors at the top. This is not a statement of importance or anything like that. It's just a triangle, folks. Don't read too much into it. Yeah. All right? And so what this helps us to see, helps us to visualize that all of us have obligations to the two other points on the triangle. As individuals, you have obligations to all the other believers, all the other people in the assembly, and you have obligations to the pastors. You have responsibilities toward those groups. The pastors have obligations to each of you as individuals, as well as to the entire church as a whole. The entire church has responsibilities and obligations toward the pastors and toward how to care for individuals. Does that make sense? And so we're going to talk a little bit about what some of those things are. So let's talk about duties toward one another. First thing, the first duty as an individual Christian toward the church, you have the responsibility, the duty to regularly attend gatherings of the congregation. You must show up. Hebrews 10.25, which we just read, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. One of the things that I like to highlight in this verse is that Paul, the author of Hebrews, sets neglecting to meet together and encouraging one another as the opposite ends there. Not... Not neglecting to meet together and meeting together. Yes? Well, and he pairs it up with the first part, or with 24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, comma, not neglecting. Like, us considering how to encourage and build one another up is tied to meeting together. Correct. It's not, so bring them a meal when they're sick, bring them their favorite cup of coffee, take them out to eat. Building one another up and encouraging one another in the highest sense here is directly prioritized with meeting together. Correct. Yeah, that's really good. So here's what I would tell you. When, when people question me about, well, do I really have to go to church? My response to them is always, you have an obligation to the other Christians in the church to show up to church. It's not that you have an obligation to me. This is not an obligation that you have toward your pastor or toward your pastors. This is an obligation that you have toward other believers. Because it is an encouragement to your fellow believers when they come to church and see you there too. It is a discouragement to your fellow believers when they show up to church and you're not there because, oh, well, you know, my baby niece's dog was having a birthday party. Okay, We gather together because it is a command, but we gather together because of the effect that it has on other believers. And so if you want a good reason to get out of bed on Sunday morning, it's because other people are counting on you. Other people are depending on you to stir them up to love and good works, to encourage them. And so show up and participate. Be a part of it. That's the first duty toward one another. Secondly, 
Love one another. Love one another. John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. People love to read the first part of that and stop. A new command I give to you that you love one another. Period. The end. That's not where Jesus stops. Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So let's think about how Jesus loves us. Right? Jesus willingly took on human flesh. Jesus willingly suffered. Jesus willingly was persecuted. Jesus willingly was betrayed. Jesus willingly was brutally beaten. Jesus willingly was killed. Jesus willingly took your sins upon himself. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it does involve active. It, it requires active involvement in each other's lives. Yes. It requires knowing what people are walking through. So, you know, when, when Michael's brother passed away, I knew about Michael's brothers and I knew about their struggles and I knew about Michael's love for them and his heart for them. And all of those things helped me to love Michael during that time. Because I understood where he was coming from. And I'm not saying that to say, so look how great I am. No. I'm saying that's, that's the kind of way that we're supposed to interact with each other and love one another. But, but circling back around, like, like Hannah was saying, Jesus was willing to put up both with minor and major inconveniences to the point of death. Right. We say... Well, I don't want to love that person because they get on my nerves. I don't want to love that person because they're kind of annoying. I don't want to love that person because, well, they're friends with this other person that I don't like. I don't want to love that person because they said something rude to me 17 years ago at the gas station. And I'm never going to let it go. And we think those are legitimate excuses to not love one another. 
But when Jesus says, you have to love one another just like I have loved you, you realize really quickly, you have no legitimate excuses to not love one another. That's the bottom line. You must love one another. Next thing, seek peace and unity within the congregation. Seek peace and unity within the congregation. So uh, John 15 verses 12 through 17. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I, do, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. In these things I command you so that you will love one another. So essentially here, what we have to remember is that we should be willing to love one another to the point of preserving peace and unity, even if that means laying down our own lives. There are countless stories of churches that have split over the stupidest stuff. One group wants the carpet to be blue. The other group wants the carpet to be green. And they fight and they bicker to the point that they literally break apart over something that is just stupid. Instead, we should be actively seeking to preserve unity. So that means if you really want blue carpet and another person really wants green carpet and you really feel like it's going to bring disunity, you should be willing to go, you know what, green carpet's fine. And I know that we all think of that as a stupid example, but that's a real legitimate thing that has happened in multiple churches. Pews, chairs, what kind of music you li- what kind of music you play in the service, all those things. All ridiculous nonsense to break apart a church over. Loving one another means seeking to preserve peace and unity within the congregation. That means not, not taking sides when there's conflict. When, when there's two church members at odds with one another, it means not going and being like, well, I'm on Scott's side. Nope, I'm on Jackie's side. And drawing battle lines. It means I'm going to go stand between Scott and Jackie and say, how can we reconcile the two of you? How do we get past this? That's the duty we have to each other. We are responsible to care for one another physically and spiritually. Physically and spiritually. Matthew twenty-five forty, And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So that means that when people have needs, might be a physical need, they need food, they need gas, they need somewhere to stay, they need a job, whatever it might be, we do whatever we can to help them. When they have spiritual needs, someone to talk to, someone to help them walk through something, we make ourselves available to them. Absolutely, please do. Spiritually, with our spiritual needs, it, it, it is so amazing 
And it's like uh, my dad's lost. Um, a lot of my family were lost. A lot of people here yesterday were lost. But they saw the church come around us and just loving on us and taking care of us. You have no idea what's going on inside their heads or their hearts right now or, or how God's going to use that for his own glory by seeing this body work in such a way as to glorify God in what y'all did for us. And just to tell you that words can express our gratitude, um, but also words can express what the Lord may do to the lost by His Spirit to each one that was here to see what y'all did for us. So, um, we thank y'all so much. But, but this just really is the point. To giving to each other physically and spiritually and helping and nurturing. And the perfect example was yesterday of how y'all just loved us. My dad, um, I've been praying for his salvation for years. And my dad has barely saw me preach. He's not been preaching for a good many years. <laughs> um, but but to see the body in action yesterday really made a difference in his life. So I just want to say that to this point. Yeah, when a lot of these things that we have these duties toward one another, these are ways that we make the love of Christ visible to the world. Are you going to say something? Just, it loops back around to you saying earlier we have a duty to one another to show up. Mm-hmm. Because that is what God says is one of our spiritual needs. And so, I don't know how many times over the course of my life as a believer, especially as an adult member of churches, and as your wife being able to be pulled into situations that not necessarily the entire church knew about. I can immediately think of multiple scenarios at multiple churches where it has come up in conversation with someone in tears saying, people don't know that this is happening in my life and how sad it is when they just don't need to come. Like they don't need to know all of these details in my life to know that it encourages me when they're at church and I don't feel like I'm going through and that has happened at every single church I've been a part of. And with each one of my really close friends at those churches, is seeing them struggle with people not understanding how important it is for them to just be there. And because of how much it encouraged them to see other people prioritizing that. Yeah. yeah I think you would be, you would probably be genuinely surprised by how much good it does for people's hearts and souls for you to just be there on Sunday morning and walk up and say, Hey, I'm really glad to see you today. That's it. You would be surprised by how much it encourages people.
I go from being discouraged to I couldn't be happier to be here. Like I go home, I don't even need a nap, <laughs> even though I do end up taking one every time I every chance I get, you know, like it's just been so good to be here with y'all and to reorient my heart. So the other side of that coin, one side of the coin is caring for one another physically and spiritually. The other side of that coin is to watch over one another and hold one another accountable. And these two things are intertwined because this is caring for people's lives. But this is the part that people feel like is more difficult and uncomfortable. The part where you say, hey, man, hey, listen, I've noticed this pattern of sin in your life. Can we talk about that? And sometimes that pattern of sin is the neglecting of meeting together with the body. It should not fall on your pastors to have to track down every wayward church member. To say, hey, why aren't you coming to church? There are people who are not coming to church on Sundays. And they have excuses like, well, you know, it's too hard to sit for an hour and a half while they're sitting at Cracker Barrel for an hour and a half. And it's the responsibility of the church to go to them and say, you are in sin and you need to repent. And that's just a very basic one that is very plainly seen. We can all see when people aren't here. Well, if you actually show up. But there are other aspects, too, that as your lives are more intertwined, you're going to see patterns of sin. And it's your responsibility to speak to those things. To encourage one another, not in a, man, you sure are a filthy sinner, but in a, hey, man, how can I help you trust in Christ in this rather than leaning on your own understanding? Does that make sense? And so that's another thing. We have to watch over one another and hold one another accountable. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spiritual spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That means that when, even when it's inopportune, when, it, when it's inconvenient for you, if someone comes to you and says, I really need to talk to you about this struggle that I'm having. Can you talk with me and pray with me? And you're sitting there going, I really don't want to. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I have other stuff to do. You say, absolutely. Let's do that. Yep. We're going to get to that in just a second. Yeah, no, you're fine. You're fine. Edify one another. Edify one another. That means build one another up. First uh, Thessalonians 5.11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So we care for people when they have needs. We hold one another accountable when they have sin. And we encourage one another when they're doing well. You see how this works? We have to do all of them. And so, for example, if you are particularly blessed by one of the songs that we sing on a Sunday or all of the songs that we sing on a Sunday, and I'm not, he has not said this to me, but I'm telling you for a fact. I guarantee you that if you went to Scott and said, Scott, the songs you picked today just really encouraged me. This song in particular really blessed my heart. That's going to encourage Scott. That's going to edify him. It's going to build him up. I guarantee it will. Am I wrong, Scott? 
Do what? No, he won't either. Listen, I want y'all to know something. This man labors every single week over what to sing. He late next week we're having a baptism. And we're going to have several people here who are not Christians, who do not go to church anywhere. Scott has already picked, he picked out songs for that Sunday two weeks ago. Because it was so important to him to pick the right songs that would communicate the gospel clearly on that Sunday. Not just that. Corey talks to me all the time about how I really need to get the readings or all of this done so I can get that to Scott so he can choose what to pick to sing. And so I know because of that, Scott, that you're taking into consideration what Corey's preaching on, what we're memorizing the fire verses, all of that. Well, y'all heard Scott say, like, Corey threw me a softball this week. We read Psalm 130, so we're singing Psalm 130, you know? Like, it's all intentional, and it's all done for the sake of building up the body. Like, we're not just up there winging it, folks. Right. You know? And, and that's, just a, that, that's just one example of a way that you can build one another up. If you're, if you're sitting by someone, and they're singing loudly, even if they're singing poorly, if they're singing loudly... Telling them, hey, listen, I just want to tell you, your enthusiasm in singing on Sundays is such a blessing to me. That's going to be such an encouragement to them. Going to a mom or a dad who has a bunch of rambunctious children or one rambunctious child who they are struggling through, sitting in the gathering with and telling them, hey, you're doing a good job. I know it's hard, but you're doing a good job. That is something that would encourage them to no end. I know that because I've been that dad. Even when you know that someone has made the choice to be there. Like, I know offhand a couple people here who came, even though they had texted me earlier that morning that they were having a migraine and they probably wouldn't come. And then they showed up anyway. And not that it, like I said, it would have been long for them to sleep if that's what their body really needed, but the fact that they chose to yeah so encourage one another build one another up that's a responsibility of church members bear with one another bear with one another romans 15 1 we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves and then 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 1 through 7. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. And this is the key right here. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? When we think about bearing with one another, it's not just bearing with people who annoy us. It's literally bearing with weaker brothers and sisters. It's having the exact same conversation about the exact same sin every single Sunday. You bear with one another 
And you who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians is elaborating on that by talking about Christians who are so frustrated with one another that they're literally suing one another in courts of law. And Paul essentially says, you are defaming the name of Christ. You should rather be defrauded and suffer wrong. You should rather lose everything than to drag the name of Jesus through the mud. That's what it means to bear with one another. That we would rather lose everything than to make Jesus look bad to the world. Bear with one another. We're also told that we must pray for one another. Pray for one another. James 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Notice here the kind of prayer that James is talking about. He's not talking about, hey man, can you pray for me? My dog has a hangnail. He says, confess your sins to one another. Real, deep, meaningful prayer for one another. That's the kind of praying for one another we're supposed to do. We also should keep away from those who would destroy the church. Romans 16, 17, I appeal to you, brother, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create, create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. False teachers, people who cause division, people who bring strife, mark and avoid them. Do not engage with them. Do not try to love them into the kingdom. Mark and avoid them. Trust the Lord with them. The unity of the church is so important. Unity in love and unity in doctrine. It's so important that we are literally told anybody who creates divisions or creates obstacles contrary to right doctrine, avoid them. I think in the world we live in today, that, is, that goes as far as the YouTube videos or podcasts that you listen to, making sure that you're not listening to someone who is a false teacher so that you come back here with a different opinion. Or sharing their garbage on Facebook. Right, or, or, and pushing that stuff out there and, and come back here with a different opinion on something and then when the, the Bible is preached to you, then you, you're questioning whether which one of those is true. Yep. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. We need to reject evaluating people by worldly standards. All right, so Matthew 20, 26 through 27, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And so in other words, we should not approach people in terms of what can you do for me? How can you benefit me? That's not the way that Christians are supposed to interact with one another. And we're supposed to contend together for the gospel. All right, contend together for the gospel. Philippians 1.27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We are supposed to be doing these things so that we can all be united together in doing the work of sharing the gospel. That's the, that's the goal. 
And we're also supposed to be examples to one another. And that's in Philippians 2, 1 through 18, uh, which you have there on your sheet. And um, is it 1 through 18 that it is? Yeah, Yeah, it is. Okay. And so I'm not going to read through all of that, but essentially it's Paul talking about his thankfulness for them and talking about the advance of the gospel. And then he goes into how they are to interact with one another using the example of Jesus. And he's talking about having a unified, like having one mind among them, one heart among them, following the example of Christ. And so we are supposed to do that for one another. We should be able to look to each other to see what the Christian life looks like. All right. Let's talk about pastor's duties towards members. The first and most important, the first and most important duty of the pastor is to bring God's word to God's people. That is the first and most, most important duty of the pastor. That is why the church pays me a salary so that I am free of worldly entanglements that I might devote myself to study and prayer and preparation. That's, why, that's what I spend my time doing is preparing to preach on Sunday, preparing to teach theology class, doing those things. There are other obligations and responsibilities that I have, but this takes priority. Everything else is secondary and can be passed off to deacons if necessary. But I can't pass this off to deacons unless my wife very inconveniently goes into labor on a Saturday afternoon. All right. 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is my primary responsibility. That's Pastor Michael's primary responsibility. Secondly, uh, pastor's duties towards members, live lives to be imitated. We talked a lot about this when I preached through Titus. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So, We are called as pastors to live lives that you should be able to emulate as you seek to serve and follow Jesus. Thirdly, pastors are are called to serve willingly and eagerly. When a member needs me for something, I am to be willing and eager to help them. Not, okay, I'm, I'm called to be that. First Peter five, one through three. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. All right. And so that moves us toward members duties towards pastors. Members are obligated to respect, honor your pa- respect and honor your pastors and to hold them in high regard. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. All right? One of the ways that you do this, going back to something that Scott said earlier, one of the ways that you do this is that you look to your pastors to be your primary Bible teachers. 
your primary obligation to learning and hearing and obeying the scriptures should come through me as the primary preaching pastor of your church. Not through whatever guy you find on YouTube that tickles your ears. That's a part of respecting and honoring and holding in high regard the pastors of your church. Okay? But it also means that you seek our counsel, you listen to our counsel. All right? That doesn't mean you can't joke with us and have fun with us. That would be really weird for me if people didn't joke with me and have fun with me. I I wouldn't know what to do. But it does mean recognizing that there is that, that we are set apart by God for this task. All right. So so don't don't worry. Like, I'm not telling you guys that, you know, I, I expect you to start referring to me as reverend all the time and doing all that kind of weird stuff. The church I served in North Louisiana before I came there, when the pastor would enter into the church, into the sanctuary building on Sunday mornings, he would come in last. Everyone would be seated. And then the, the, the organist would start to play the organ and they would throw the back doors open. And he would walk in. And everyone would stand up as he walked up to the front, up onto the platform and sat in one of the big throne chairs up there. And when they told me that, I thought, that is one of the weirdest things I have ever heard in my entire life. So the only thing I'll say is that when we do build the new building, what I want is for there, for there to be a plat, like a, 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 an elevating platform <laughs> hidden so that when we start, yeah, so when we start, we, I could just rise up out of the floor. Yeah, like the Garth Brooks entrance. Yeah. I'm totally kidding. Don't do that. Hey, and there was a time when Garth Brooks came, came flying in, like, suspended like Mary cables. No, thank you. <laughs> if we if we try to do that in our building, the whole building would fall down. <laughs> All right. Next thing. Defend their reputation, obey their instructions, and believe their word. Defend their reputation, obey their instructions, and believe their word. Hebrews 13, 17. Every church member's least favorite verse in the Bible. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So not only are you called to obey your leaders and submit to them, you're called to do so joyfully, not with grumbling. Because it's of less advantage to you, of no advantage to you, if you have to do this begrudgingly. Now, let me, let me clarify. This does not mean that I have total and absolute authority over your life. Okay? That's weird. I know that there are some divisions of 
so-called Christianity, where the pastor of the church has absolute authority over everything in the lives of members. There's a Mennonite church, a Mennonite community in Lake Providence that, that functions this way. The pastor arranges all the marriages. The pastor tells people who can have what business and how much they have to charge. Like he literally runs everything. I don't want that kind of power. All right. I don't want that kind of responsibility. I got enough stuff dealing with my own stuff. But when it comes to the things of the church, church members are called. They have a duty, an obligation to obey their leaders and submit to them. That means defending our reputations. So people who speak ill of us, you have an obligation to defend us. People in the church who grumble about us, you have an obligation to defend us. You have an obligation to obey our instructions. If we tell you from scripture, this is what we're going to do, you don't have to necessarily like it, but you do have to do it. And that's, I'm speaking again of the functions of the church and believe our word. You should view us as trustworthy rather than being skeptical of the things that we tell you. Okay? Imitate their lives. We already covered 1 Corinthians 11, 1, but again, we are called to live lives that are, that are to be imitated and you are called to imitate our lives. And then finally, when possible, provide material support. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So church, these are your responsibilities toward pastors. To respect, honor, and hold them in high regard, defend their reputation, obey their instructions, and believe their word, to imitate their lives, and when possible, provide material support for them, like you do for me. Okay? I know of churches that have plenty of money in the bank and don't pay their pastor like they should. They're in sin. That's sinful. Churches should support their pastor to the fullest extent that they can. And that's all I'm going to say about that. And, and by the way, just for clarification, y'all do a phenomenal job of that. I have no complaints. Okay? This is not my pitch for more money next year. All right. So at this time, I'll open up the floor for questions. Yes? Can you clarify where defending, obeying, and believing your pastor also meets the church member's obligation to hold you accountable and to exercise church authority versus pastoral authority? Okay, so so essentially the what you're talking about would be, would be talking about sin. And so if there is clear evidence of sin, then it is the church's responsibility to hold a pastor to account. Now, the Bible does specifically tell us that there is a higher bar for admitting a charge against an elder, right? So whereas a charge against an individual, like a, a non-elder as, a, as just a member of the church the process begins with one person saying, I have, I have seen this, I have witnessed this. Paul says, do not admit a charge against an elder unless there are two or more witnesses. So the, the entry point for that is higher. 
But when I say respect the authority of the pastor versus holding the pastor accountable, all authority that I have is, is rooted within the word of God. And so there's nothing that I can stand on of my own accord and say, you have to listen to me because I'm the pastor, apart from what the scriptures say. And if there's something that I am saying from the scriptures that is wrong, then we go to the scriptures together to work that out. But if at any point I am standing apart from the scriptures and exerting authority that I do not have, that is when you should hold me accountable as a church to say you are abusing your position and exerting authority that you do not have. That's sin. Does that make sense? So that's not, there are, listen, there are churches out there that will straight up tell you, I refuse to believe that my pastor could sin because I'm called to respect and honor him. Touch not the Lord's anointed. I tell you with great, great confidence, your pastors, your elders are sinners. And any elder you have in addition to us or after us will also be a sinner. I assure you. You don't have to question that. Slap him in the face and fire him. In that order. Slap him in the face, fire him. If they tell you they have no sin. Heard other people bring up here? No. Okay, I was gonna say. <laughs> this conversation is about to get interesting. That's what I was saying. I'm like, maybe people who I've met in the area that aren't currently coming to this church. Okay. What kind of questions? Just just about that, like, you know, as you talk through pastoral authority, but also I think a good example is putting someone under church discipline, which we haven't really gotten there yet. Yep. So let, me, so let me clarify using church discipline as an example. So the way church discipline would take place is simply because the whole church doesn't need to necessarily know everybody's sin. It starts as something that the elders are dealing with, right? That's where it begins. Because the hope is that the elders in, in approaching this brother or sister in their sin and saying you need to repent, the hope is that they would say, you're right, I do need to repent, and, and they repent. That's the hope, and then that's the end of it. It's done. But sometimes that doesn't happen. And so what happens then is, we as the elders would come to the whole gathered body and say, this is what is happening. At that point, there are no secrets. We're not holding anything back. We're not saying, you guys just have to trust our take. We're saying, this is the situation. 
In addition, the person who is being accused and is at risk of being placed under church discipline will be told the meeting will be at th- on this day at this time. You are welcome to come and state your own case. You are welcome to come and do that. And then it becomes the church having heard all of the information. Everything that the elders have, have gathered, everything that the accused might say or not say, the church would then make that determination. There is never going to be a scenario in which I as, a, as an elder or Michael and I as elders are going to say to the church, we're putting this person under discipline and you just need to trust us. Well, here's what I would say. You should trust your elders never implicitly. But I, I think that that's a good point, though. Y'all should trust me as far as you can verify what I'm saying in Scripture. And then beyond that, you should believe the best about me because that's what we're commanded to do in Scripture when we love one another. But verify what I'm saying according to the Scriptures. Because I've, all, I've told y'all since before I even came here, I am, all, I am going to teach from what the scriptures say. And if you want to argue with me about it and disagree with me, that's totally fine. I'm not going to be angry at you. I'm not going to, I mean, unless you come to me with heresy, I'm not going to have you, I'm not going to move toward church discipline with you. But I am going to tell you that you better come to me with your Bible open. Because you're not going to argue with me from what you think or from what tradition has said, or what you've always heard, or what you've always thought, or what feels right. Because none of those things are relevant up against the scriptures. And so what the trust that you have in me is trust in the word of God being proclaimed by me. Not in me in and of myself. Does that make sense? Did I, did I explain that well enough to answer your question? So I think, you know, especially like trying to get back to away from church discipline, just back onto the topic of membership. I think the order in which you taught membership tonight was extremely important. And why the list was so much longer at on the on the first list of the, the responsibilities of an individual Christian to the gathered body, mm-hmm. you know, that it encompasses everything else that you did after that was encompassed in that first one. If you go, you start looking backwards every time you get to one of those points later on, whether it's your responsibility to us or our responsibility to you, you go back to the first slide, that list, it really just drives that point off. And on top of that, I do want to emphasize one thing too, that your elders are also a part of the gathered body. Right. Like we are a part of the assembly of Christians. And so you are also obligated to do these things for our sake just like every other member of our church. So these are things that you do for us just by virtue of the fact that we are Christians and church members. That's also what we do for you. Exactly. Yeah, we are obligated to do these things just in a general sense. In addition, like the, the duties of members toward pastors and pastors toward members are in addition to these things. They don't cancel them out or supersede one another, right? So... You are to watch over Michael and I and hold us accountable while also respecting our authority as pastors and submitting to our teaching. 
because we're all Christians here. And you submit to us because we bear the responsibility before God for your souls. You will answer to the Lord for how you interact with other Christians. We will answer to the Lord for every single one of you. No pressure. So, any other questions, comments, concerns, statements, off-topic, nonsense, whatever? Now's your chance. All right. Five minutes till the television says kickoff. All right. I'm going to ask if Pastor Michael would pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Father God, we thank you for this time that we can come and we can learn about being a part of the body and what that means. That we can learn our responsibility. That we can learn what you would expect of us, God, and that what what we should expect from one another. Lord, I do pray that you would all take us to heart, that we would all learn and grow, and we would all do the things that you have commanded us in the word to do. Lord, let us always be faithful to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.